Welcome to Bio, a podcast produced by the Biographers International Organization. Bio is devoted to promoting the work of biographers and advocating for biography as a genre with the support of biographers and biography lovers worldwide. I'm Bio member Sonia Williams in Washington, D.C. On each episode, we'll talk with biographers about their work. This time, author Loretta Coleman Brown talks about her biography of the famed theologian, educator, and writer Howard Thurman. The book, What Makes You Come Alive, A Spiritual Walk with Howard Thurman, was published this month by Broadleaf Books. Loretta Coleman Brown, a former distinguished psychology professor and spiritual director and speaker, was interviewed by fellow biographer and bio member Kevin Magruder. Larita Coleman Brown. Welcome. Thank you so much. It's just such an honor to be on this program. It was an informative book for me. And in it, you mentioned that Howard Thurman wrote an autobiography, others have written biographies, but this is something different. Well, I wasn't intending to write a book on Howard Thurman. I discovered him late in life, which I found problematic. And, uh, I wrote a paper on him as a requirement for my spiritual direction training. So I started giving retreats on him, and I had so many people rushing the stage saying, who is this? Never heard of this person. Why don't I know about him? And so I thought, there are a lot of people like myself. I consider myself to be a spiritual seeker. And I I can't just say every day. I was a professor for 33 years, okay, in psychology, not in theology, not in spirituality per se. And so I felt like there was a need to have something that the everyday person who was trying to understand who they were as a spiritual being or who may have been recently introduced to mysticism or in some way wanted to have a wisdom figure to read and talk about, et cetera. So I think I wrote it for people like me who go to retreats and who try to live a spiritual life every day. And so you can learn a lot from Thurman's autobiography, but there's so much more. And what you demonstrate is that you can't really understand Howard Thurman's spirituality unless you understand his biography. And for those who have not heard of him, may know his name, but don't know about him. Can you briefly summarize his biography and then we can move into his spirituality? So the shorter version of a a much longer story is that Howard Thurman was born on November the 11th, 1899, somewhere near West Palm Beach, Florida. His family moved to Uh, Daytona Beach, Florida, where he spent most of his childhood. At age seven, he lost his father to a bout with pneumonia. Um, A critical incident that happened during that time was that his father was a very intellectual, well-read man, but not necessarily a person interested, or I should say maybe a little skeptical of organized religion. So he didn't attend church. And so when he passed away, the local Baptist church he and his grandmother and mother and sisters attended refused to host his funeral. 
And so there was a visiting preacher who uh, agreed to give the eulogy, but in it he condemned Saul Thurman, his father, to hell for not being a churchgoer. And that just small incident uh, had some extended influence on his life. He continued doing well academically. However, at the time, Black children could not achieve past the seventh grade because there was no eighth grade education for them. So he could not attend high school, but his community came together to make sure that he was tutored so that he could pass that exam and was able to then go on to the Florida Baptist Academy. I will say that he was having, I I guess we could call them sort of transcendent experiences outside uh, along the beaches of Daytona Beach, Florida, as well as rowing along the Halifax River. And so he had this sense that there was the presence of God, particularly in nature, all around him. And because he was so terrorized by the environment of the Jim Crow South at the time, he chose, as he says um, in his autobiography, to go inside to God. And so what he was doing under a big oak tree that he said he could communicate with was meditating. He didn't know those words as a young child, but that's exactly what he was doing, he later found out. And so he continued on at the Florida Baptist Academy, which is now, by the way, Florida Memorial College. But um, he was an extraordinarily excellent student, graduated valedictorian of his class, uh, which enabled him to have a full-ride scholarship to Morehouse College in Atlanta, where he also graduated valedictorian of his class and was deeply influenced by Mordecai Wyatt Johnson, who later became the president of Howard University. And it is said that he read every book in the library at the time. Not sure if that myth is true. He then went on to what was called then Colgate-Rochester Seminary in New York. Despite the fact that it was a predominantly white college, he graduated valedictorian of his class Um, So he's just an absolutely brilliant student, and in that time was ordained shortly after graduation, um, married Katie Kelly, and they moved to Oberlin, Ohio, where he began pastoring a church, the Mount Zion Baptist Church there. Uh, During that time, he discovered a book called Finding the Trail of Life. It had been written by Quaker mystic Rufus Jones, and as he read his story, he said, I felt like he was telling my story. So through a series of what I want to call sacred synchronicities or holy coincidences, whatever you want to call that, he uh, was able to then study with Rufus Jones for a semester at Harvard College, despite the fact that Harvard College was not admitting Black students at the time. But he learned quite a bit there, particularly about uh, mysticism, and began to explore it for himself. He he had a few problems with Rufus Jones because the kind of mysticism that he taught him, which was called affirmation mysticism, where when you go down into God, you come up in unity or community, which stirs kind of a moral imperative to go out and remove these barriers that are causing inequality and injustice. And so he continued to work on this topic but he was, of course, ridiculed and criticized because 
at that time, many Black leaders thought, this is very impractical, and how is this a tool for liberation? So he uh, decided to actually create a series of studies around mysticism and social change, and actually try to come up with better descriptions and categories for that. But he was very taken with this idea that by going inside, we can summon the courage to be able to um, have the vitality to go out and deal with some of the more serious social issues. He uh, later was convinced to lead a pilgrimage to India with his second wife, Sue Bailey, who was quite an activist in her own right. And so along with her and another couple, Edward and Fanola Carroll, they took a six-month pilgrimage to India. And during that time, they gave a number of lectures. I think some of the, the Christians over there thought that perhaps maybe if some darker-skinned people came to talk about Christianity, it might convince others. And who was in the audience? These were South Asian Indian Christians. It was sort of a group similar to the YMCA who invited him. And he was very clear that he was not going over there to you know, evangelize Christianity, but that he would talk to them about the struggles of Black people in the United States. He had an opportunity to meet the Indian poet Tagore, but more momentous was his meeting with Mahatma Gandhi. It was a three-hour meeting, uh, which almost didn't happen because illness and sickness on both sides. But it was an extraordinary meeting, and Gandhi basically had lots of questions, and Thurman gave him a good old Negro history lesson about the history of Black folks in the United States. Um, but they talked about Ahimsa, you know, the sort of nonviolent or maybe more of a force of love, and Satyagra, which was the non-cooperation component of it. And he encouraged them to start with small acts and work up to bigger ones. But he felt like his message of nonviolent, non-cooperation would be manifest in the lives of Black folks in the United States. And so that was just a very momentous meeting. And that's 1935? 1935-36. Mm -hmm. They left in the fall and returned in March of 1936. He was, at that time, had been appointed professor and dean of the Ratkin Chapel at Howard University. And he was working with a number of students and giving talks and sermons on nonviolent direct action. And he received a letter from a gentleman in San Francisco saying that they were trying to start an intentional interdenominational interracial congregation. And did he know of any seminary students who might be interested? So Thurman had this kind of vision while he was in India that suggested to him that he wanted to know whether or not people of different faith traditions, people of different denominations and of different racial and ethnic groups could actually worship God together in the same place. So he said, I'm not going to look for a seminary student. I'm going. And so he left Howard University. People thought he was nuts because, you know, he had no idea how he was going to be able to support his family. But he felt a call and uh, started the you know Church of the Fellowship of All Peoples in San Francisco in 1944. And uh, it is actually still in existence, but he remained there until around 1953, when he was asked to join the faculty as their first Black faculty member. 
of Boston University and become the dean of the Marsh Chapel there. And it is there that he crossed paths with uh, Martin Luther King Jr. There's so many connections to these men that started even before King was born because the families knew each other. The Thurmans knew Daddy King and Alberta King. Can you talk about that? And also how it fits with the concept that when things like that happen, it's more than what we would call coincidence. Yeah, it's just extraordinary. So Sue Bailey Thurman and Alberta King, uh, Martin Luther King Jr.'s mother, were roommates in high school. And they remained friends over time. That's number one. Number two, when the Thurmans came back from India, one of the first stops that they made was having dinner with the Kings, you know, to talk about what they had learned and their meeting with Gandhi. Martin Luther King Jr. would have been about seven years old at the time. And it's not clear whether or not he was present for that dinner, but there was that connection. And then King met Thurman again on the pages of Jesus and the Disinherited. He wrote a paper about it when he was at Crozier Seminary. And Jesus and the Disinherited, can you explain why that's important? Yes. So Thurman had been thinking, you know, starting in the late 20s, early 30s, about Jesus being a leader of a nonviolent religion and being a non-cooperator. And so he started giving sermons and talking about this. Um, He published a paper the summer before he left for the pilgrimage to India called Good News for the Underprivileged. And it was really a paper describing his scrutinization of the Gospels and his interpretation, which is that Jesus was really trying to do something different than what people have suggested about who he was and what he was doing. Thurman was very interested in Jesus as a person, not necessarily in the the religion of Christianity. He found like there were some serious problems with Christianity, especially if, in fact, you had a religion that sanctioned legal segregation, um, often in some cases stopped services to go find somebody doing a lynching, and advocated colonialism as well as imperialism. So, you know, he just sort of says, I don't know what this religion is, but I do not think this is the religion of Jesus. So that was sort of one of the first things. The second thing is he saw some parallels between Jesus's situation in uh, Roman-occupied Palestine at the time. Um, Jesus was a poor Jew. So he saw these parallels between Jesus's circumstances and the circumstances of Black folks at the time in the United States and all over the world for that matter. He basically said, you know, I think if we look more closely here at the Gospels, we might see a way out of our own situation. So he also in this book describes what he calls the three hounds that trail the the disinherited, which is fear, deception, or hypocrisy, and hatred. So the book is sort of divided into a chapter about Jesus and how Jesus differed from Paul in terms of their privilege and social status and why they might have different perspectives and how one might be able to see themselves out of this situation where they're either immobilized by fear or they're trying to manipulate people through hypocrisy or just being bitter, where the bitterness becomes poisonous to the spirit of the person. Um, And then his final chapter is about love and about reconciliation 
And he proposes some real challenges to people about whether or not you actually can reconcile with a person who is clearly engaged in activities to prevent you from realizing your own potential. So he publishes this book. And even though it didn't get big fanfare when it was first published, especially from the sort of general theological community. When did that come out? The book? It, came, it came out in 1949. Okay. So he was pastoring the Church of the Fellowship of All Peoples at that time. He was a Black man, right? And so people are like, yeah, okay. However, there are a lot of people who read that book and were spurred into action, like James Lawson and Bayard Rustin and Polly Marshall, all these people sort of pre-civil rights movement who were engaged in activities and who were like saying, oh, wow, this shows us a, a possible way to get organized and start working on this problem. And is that the book that Martin Luther King carried around with yes, him? Yes, it is said that he mm -hmm. carried the book with him every time he marched. Mm -hmm. And then there were other people, of course, that read it, you know, uh, Jesse Jackson and John Lewis and a host of others that were also influenced. You know, you run into Marion Wright Edelman, founder of the Children's Defense Fund, as well as Barack Obama. He <laughs> read some Thurman too. And what do you think resonated with all of these people who were activists and some who still are? I think there were two things. One of them is that Thurman points out that Jesus was not preaching to the aristocracy. He was preaching to his own people. And he was preaching to them about, uh, you have more personal power than you think, but it's inside. And so one of the first things that you need to do is to protect your inward center and to not allow other people's comments about you to become truth for you, as well as for you to internalize them. You know, Thurman early on was very curious about having an accurate portrayal of your self-concept. So what is it that people tell you about yourself or what do you learn about yourself from family, community, media, school, et cetera, that is really true versus that isn't true about you. So particularly when he was spiritual advisor to many of the students at Morehouse and Spelman in the late 20s, whatever is happening out in this environment, do not allow it to crush your spirits. And he also leaned into many of the Negro spirituals to encourage and, and what his grandmother told him, which was that you're a child of God. Never forget that. That was something that she learned while she was uh, enslaved, that the enslaved preacher would come and tell them every year, which is that he would say, look, you're not the N-word. You're not slaves. You are children of God. And so she wanted to instill that in him as his primary identity, as opposed to what other people might be saying to him from the outside. So I think that was one really important component of it. And the second was that once you have an accurate portrayal of yourself and you understand that you are a child of God, Thurman suggested that it increases your self-esteem and the probability that you are going to be able to realize your potential. So the, the freedom was actually coming from the inside out. And so once you have that, you have the strength, you have the courage, you have the vitality to go out there and start making changes. So I think that's what really sparked people about that book. Can you talk about your process in writing this book to introduce Howard Thurman to everyday people? 
how did you decide what you're going to use? Were there new sources that you drew on? And how did your training in psychology help you? I think a lot of my process came from leading retreats on him and seeing what resonated with people in terms of what's really practical. You know, first giving some people a sense of who he was, but then I found that it was important to identify certain areas that were important to him that would also be important to everyday people, like his emphasis on silence and stillness. He felt like particularly congregational silence was healing. And uh, he always had some quiet period during his worship service. But particularly when he went to San Francisco, people were asking for more silence. So he introduced uh, another meditation period for which he wrote many meditations for prior to the service, the worship service. So he was a strong advocate of every day, you need to stop. You know, he has a meditation called Lull and Doing. Just stop. Because he felt like going inside and being quiet renewed your spirit. It gave you vitality. And it is the spirit which gives life to everything. Uh, he was a nature person. Some people like to call him a nature mystic. He was just a mystic, period. And so, but he really felt like he could commune with the presence of God in, in everything outside. You know, being outside in quiet or stillness is very healing as well. So that was one of those themes that kept coming up. I also found that people were confused about mysticism, almost afraid to even say the word. He had written all these papers on this topic. And so I wanted to utilize his opportunities to demystify or to destigmatize the word, since oftentimes people associate it with either the occult or devil worship or something like that. Uh, Lerone Bennett, I think, said, you know, he gave us a challenge to reconstitute spirituality. So, so many of us who are training as spiritual directors or, you know, who are introduced to spirituality often are introduced to either European or Celtic or, you know, they're certainly not being introduced to any African-American mystics or African mystics. So Thurman offers a totally different flavor of mysticism, which I think people can then perhaps accept a little better or even practice. And uh, he had a lot of providential accidents or coincidences in his life. And he thought of it as the hand of God sort of every now and then intervening to help kind of move you along in a particular direction and that we should pay attention to that and utilize it if we can. I mean, you so, mentioned a, a couple of them. The fact that that meeting with Mahatma Gandhi happens at 3.30 a.m. <laughs> and might not have happened at all, but it right. ends up kind of setting him on a course. And it seems like he almost anticipated the importance of it. Yes. And so I tried to highlight some of the things that were important to him that would be important to a spiritual seeker. And I also particularly wanted to introduce his ideas about inner authority, both in terms of the sense of agency that people have available to them, because, you know, we're, we're still talking about interior work. You know, people have their inner lives. And to what degree have you allowed other people to control your inner life? And were you mainly relying on his writings? Yes. 
So speaking of serendipity, <laughs> I just wrote an essay on this whole experience being a series of coincidences for me. You know, the whole book starts with a person giving me a picture <laughs> of Howard Thurman. And I'm like thinking, what? Why, you know, why is he showing up like this? But uh, during the time that I was writing this book, all five volumes of the Howard Thurman Papers Project became available as books. Okay. And then Peter Eisenstadt writes a 400-page poem on uh, Howard Thurman, which had more information that I didn't have. Uh, Anthony Syracuse writes this book, Nonviolence Before King, you know, which highlights Thurman as the quintessential inspiration for these people to engage in nonviolent direct action. Then Walter Fluker teaches an online class during the pandemic. <laughs> He's got papers that are not accessible anyplace else. So all of those things, you know, just flowed into my life. I sometimes think that the spirit wanted me to write this book. And I had no excuses. I was at home. It was a pandemic. And everything that I needed just sort of came to me. What I also appreciate in the book is that you weave your own biography and how you've progressed in your spiritual life. And maybe if you could talk about your decision to do that, because that's a stylistic decision. Well, I wanted Howard Thurman to be as relatable as possible. And I wanted to show people that there are opportunities to incorporate his living wisdom. And where you have to call it living wisdom because it's still feeding us 42 years after he's passed away, right? So I felt it was important for people to know that Howard Thurman was, he was on a pedestal in some ways, but not. I mean, he's not like these mystics where, you know, they're they're in living in cloistered communities and they're praying all day and they've been deemed holy and which is fine, but that there are everyday mystics or people that, you know, just emerge from communities and have these experiences. So I felt like it was um, important to provide a few examples of how our lives in some ways were very similar, but 50 years apart. And it gives people a pathway to seeing how this kind of spirituality could work in their own lives. You know, he felt like anybody could be a, become a mystic or at least be a, a much more spiritual person than they might have been before. And uh, I think that was true of me that, you know, I've evolved over time and that a life in which you are more connected to that, it's not necessarily easier, but it is perhaps more fruitful in some ways or more purposeful in other ways. And so you know, I have some extraordinary experiences along the way. And I thought in sharing some of those, it would help people to understand that you too can incorporate this and live this kind of life as well. I really appreciate this book because it does make Howard Thurman understandable, available. Are there other things you want our listeners to know? You know, I think that Howard Thurman wanted us to continue this legacy of quiet listening, you know, he felt like we still have that connection to God, to the eternal, as he describes it. Thurman would say, God created you. You're already worthy. You don't have to really do anything for that. You know, however, 
uh, I think you have a sacred call. And are you listening for that call? And so one of the things that I tried to do was to expand his notion of inner authority, which he utilized all over his life. It didn't matter what other people were saying. He was very clear about what his call was. And, you know, I think sometimes people just associate call with vocation to the ministry. Everybody has a call, as far as I'm concerned. That is that spirit within. We're walking around with that all the time. It's accessible. And I am reminded, and I mention it in the book, about how one time when uh, King was about to march some people over the Edmund Pettus Bridge, he stopped and kneeled down. And I think he had a consultation and heard, we're turning this around right? That was just such a great contemplative moment, if you want to call it that. But to me, a great use of inner authority. His inner authority suggested they needed to turn around and go back. And so when you are allowing the spirit to direct you, then the spirit, at least for me, will tell me that it's time for you to go sit down or go get some rest or whatever. I mean, I, I utilize that in this book. Now, I also had an editor, you know, with a fabulous editor, you're both happy and pained because you know how hard it was to write those words. But my editor cut out 10,000 words. I thought I was going to die. <laughs> but I also understood that all of our wonderful trees and flowers need pruning to be beautiful. So I had to just let that go. But it was painful. <laughs> <laughs> I understand. <laughs> Well, I really, really appreciate you sharing this book and your ideas about how you came to do this. I think many of our listeners will appreciate it. And and I suspect some will take advantage of the different resources that you mentioned are, are available about Howard Thurman. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for inviting me to talk about one of my favorite people. That was author Loretta Coleman Brown speaking with fellow biographer and bio member Kevin Magruder about her latest book, What Makes You Come Alive? A Spiritual Walk with Howard Thurman. It was published this month by Broadleaf Books, and this interview was recorded via Zoom on January 27th of this year. To learn more about bio or to hear other episodes in our podcast series, please visit our website biographersinternational.org. I'm bio member Sonia Williams in Washington, D.C. Alani Hodge created our theme music. And until next time, thanks so much for listening and have a wonderful day.